The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Scripture reading this morning is from uh, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, I want us to begin th- this morning by thinking about a relationship that we all have. And that is a relationship with uncertainty. What is your relationship with uncertainty like? Uncertainty is something that you and I must face every day. I'm, I'm sure you've heard it said before that the only uncertainty, or excuse me, the only certainty in life is what? Uncertainty. Yeah. It's a reality that we just can't get away from. And if you're anything like me, I imagine that you might say that you have a little bit of a rocky relationship with uncertainty. Uh, Things haven't been going well. Maybe you're avoiding uncertainty. Uh, You see it more as a foe than a friend. That might just be me. But think about it with me. What do you believe about uncertainty? What do you believe about uncertainty? When you are in the midst of uncertainty, or maybe more specifically, when you're facing an uncertain future, what do you think about? What thoughts fill your head? What emotions come up? Do you believe that you must eliminate uncertainty no matter the cost? Do you believe that uncertainty is something that needs to be avoided at all costs? Do you think that uncertainty is unfair? Any time that you're faced with an uncertain future, do you just get angry or frustrated? Or is it just me? The psychiatrist Joshua Nabb and the doctor Thomas Frederick note that research over the past 10 years um, has begun to hypothesize the relationship between uncertainty and anxiety. And they've been looking into ways that uncertainty, and and actually our beliefs about uncertainty, are leading 
to anxious activity in, to, in our lives. Uh, our beliefs about uncertainty and how they're leading to worry. So think about it with me. When you're faced with an uncertain future, when we're faced with an uncertain future, uh, we may anxiously meditate on all possible outcomes over and over again. Um, often we land on what I call the doomsday scenario. Right? This is catastrophizing, so in light of an uncertain future, we ultimately go to the worst possible outcome. And then we just sit there and accept it like it's almost a reality, right? Or is it just me? Um, or, or maybe we have to get all the possible facts about the case. And so when deciding a direction for the future, um, we have to know everything. We have to have exhaustive information. And, and maybe it's, it's so much so uh, that we struggle to make a decision when we're only missing a small amount of information. Or maybe when we're faced with an uncertain future, for some reason, we are just filled with self-doubt and shame. There's this self-accusation we tell ourselves over and over again that we've done something to lead us to this point in which we have an uncertain future ahead of us. And so these doubts, they just lead to paralysis, they just lead to indecision, and they just leave us feeling horrible about ourselves. So is it possible that uncertainty itself combined with our striving to create a permanent sense of predictability and certainty, is leading us not to the pastures of peace, but rather into the desert of anxiety and worry. Let me say that one more time. Is it possible that our negative beliefs about uncertainty itself, combined with our striving to create this permanent sense of predictability, uncertainty in our life. It's not giving us peace, which is why we're doing this, right? It's leading to what? Worry and anxiety. Okay, so it, if this is true, right, if you'll give me that, and this is true, what, what are we to do about it? Right? How are we to get out of this cycle when faced with uncertainty? Well, Nab and Frederick, who are Christians, they're Christians who are writing to other Christians. And they say that what are we to do? We're to accept and to surrender. To accept and surrender. More specifically, they say that given that pursuing a certain future is not possible, that's, that's worth sitting with for a little bit. <laughs> given that a certain future, getting a certain future, pursuing a certain future is not possible and is leading to what? Anxiety and, and worry. The best way to deal with an uncertain future is not through anxious activity, but is by accepting the reality of uncertainty. Accepting its reality. And then two, surrender. Surrendering to God's 
providential care. Accepting the reality of uncertainty, surrendering to God's providential care. Okay, so if you're like me, also, you're probably thinking, that sounds wonderful, but I can't do that. (laughs) That's the problem, right? I keep finding myself in this cycle of anxious activity and worry, right? And I totally get that. Uh, If I'm being honest with you this morning, which I would hate to do, I often want an easy life devoid of suffering and devoid of chaos. I just want an easy life filled with a permanent sense of predictability and certainty and a high level of comfort. Is that too much to ask? To continue to be honest, currently my wife and I are in a season where we just keep facing uncertainty. And it is absolutely exhausting. And at times it feels overwhelming. And it feels totally crippling. And I don't know why, but for some reason it feels safer just to sit in hopelessness. For, for some reason, it feels safer just to catastrophize <laughs> and just to meditate on the worst possible outcomes. For, for some reason, it just feels easier to do that or to enter into this constant pursuit of what? Certainty. Certainty. Um, that seems way easier than accepting the reality of uncertainty and resting in God's providential care. So, so I, don't, I don't know where you are this morning, right? And maybe that's you, or, or maybe that's, that's someone that's close to you, right? Well, in, in the midst of this season, right, in, in the midst of, of really feeling hopeless at times, I open up the psalm that I'm going to be preaching for for this week, and I read the first lines, and what do the first lines say? The Lord reigns. The Lord is king. The Lord rules. And as I read that, I said, crap. Crap. The Lord is going to make me live this stupid sermon again. I'm never teaching on demons. It's just not happening, right? I I just feel like the Lord is saying, yeah, Brett, I'm going to cause you to live this because it's so much easier for you to get up and, and just preach about it, right? Oh, and we are. We are living in the midst of uncertainty. Just... Just to be clear, we're okay, right? You know, normally in a sermon, if I do something like this, normally someone comes up, it's like, hey, bud, how's it going? <laughs> Want to get, let's get coffee. Let's get coffee. You guys, you guys need to come over. You guys just need to come over. Yeah, we're okay. And please invite me out to coffee. I'm not, you know, I, I want to come eat a free dinner at your house. Don't hear me wrong. You know, 
We're, we're okay. But, but totally, I, I feel like God has been telling me this week, Brad, you're going to have to live this sermon. And it's not been easy. It's not been easy. But in the midst of, of wrestling with this text, and in the midst of just wrestling with the uncertainty of life, I feel like the Lord has shown me that Psalm 93 is, is a pathway for, for anxious, worried people that cannot accept the uncertainty of life. It's a gift from the Lord, and it's a pathway into the green pastures of accepting uncertainty and living in the providential care of God. Living in the providential care of God. So how does Psalm 93 do that? How does Psalm 93 push us into this reality of acceptance and surrender? Well, it does so by inviting us to imagine. It does so by asking for our thoughts and asking for our attention. And Psalm 93 is really an invitation to imagine the reign of God. It's an invitation to imagine the sovereignty of God. Yeah, I know that God's sovereign. I know that he reigns. I know that he's king. Yeah, I know you do. It's an invitation to imagine to imagine what it's like and to sit in that place where we ponder the depths of God. God's reign is, is the theme of this psalm. And really, it could be argued in, in some wood that it's not only the key to this psalm, it's the key to book four, and in some ways it's the key to the Psalter as a whole and to understanding the Psalter as a whole. Right? So we've talked about lament before. Think with me about lament. In lament, the psalmist is coming for the Lord and he's laying his soul bare before him and then he's petitioning God to do something. If God's not sovereign, if God is not utterly and completely in control over everything, then what's the point of the psalmist going before him? If God can do no other then the laments are, are, are futile. No, but the psalmist knows that the Lord reigns and the Lord is king, and so he does what? And so he brings everything before him, and he petitions him to move and to act. The Lord reigns. So that's what I want us to spend our time doing this morning, if you will. Will you go on a, a journey of imagination with me? I just came up with that, and I really don't like the way that it sounded. <laughs> kind of like a kid's book or something. But I think you get the point, right? Um, can we let our imagination be shaped by the Scriptures? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Yeah, let's let our imaginations be shaped by the Scriptures. Okay, so first, I want us to imagine the triune God as the divine warrior king. Is the divine warrior king. Read verse 1 with me. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed and he's put on strength as his belt. 
Now, to get into these verses, we're going to have to talk a little bit about fashion this morning. Luckily, I'm an expert on the subject. In, in the ancient world, uh, the, the attire of the king just totally set them apart from everyone else. It was an indication of their office and their, their power. And so human kings dress in these fine ornamental clothing that separates them from everyone else. Uh, Human kings carry these ornamental maces and scepters as they go into battle. They wield swords and spears, and all of this is a sign of what? Their power and their authority. And this psalmist talks about Yahweh. He's clothed in what? Majesty. What's his weapon? His strength. His, his strength. One commentator writes that God is presented as a war hero on a cosmic scale. That Yahweh is strong. Imagine this with me. Yahweh is like a fighter awaiting combat. This majesty and the strength are, are all talking about his power. It's supposed to focus our attention on his power. And so two things about the power of God. First, God's power is revealed to us in history. Think about it with me. Moses goes before Pharaoh and his armies with what? A staff. Israel takes down the fortress of Jericho with a parade. David stands before the strongly, heavy, heavily armed Goliath with what? A, a slingshot that he got in Gatlinburg, right? Um, Jesus fights for his people by hanging from a cross. God's power is revealed through human weakness, right? We know this. But it has to be because it's the only way that you and I could begin to imagine it. It's the only way that we can begin to grasp how, how utterly terrifying it is. <laughs> how utterly powerful it is. Right? In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus and he does what? He just falls on his face. utterly terrifying. So God's power is revealed to us in history through human weakness, but it doesn't just end there because God's power is revealed to us, and the breathtaking reality is that this power is channeled. It's channeled to fight for who? For you. It's channeled to save you. It's directed towards you. God's people were in bondage in Egypt, and by his power, they were freed. God's people, as they enter the land, are outnumbered and outgunned at every turn, and by his power, they're victorious. God's people tremble before Goliath, but by God's power and through David, Goliath is defeated. The the disciples, as Jesus is crucified, they do what? They hide and they scatter, but by God's power, Jesus is raised from the dead. And then breathtakingly, 
We read in Romans 8 that the same power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is where? It's in us. By that Spirit giving us resurrected life. Can you even begin to imagine that? Can you even begin to imagine a God who fights for his people? Um, randomly, I've, I've been watching a lot of war movies recently. I have no idea why. I've also been listening to the band Reliant K. I mean, I just have no explanation for these things. But they're happening. And in time and time again, in whatever random war movie I, I find myself watching, any time there is a child or a family that, that is just about to be slaughtered, and then a more powerful force comes in and just removes the threat, I, I start getting emotional. Now, I also get emotional at the end of School of Rocks, so once again, I'm working through that. But I, I get emotional. Why? Because this is our story. We were at the hands of our enemies. Sin, death, utterly powerless. And they threatened to take us out, and there was absolutely nothing that we could do about it. But God fought for us. He fights for us at our weakest moment. He fights for us as we fight and stand in opposition to him. <laughs> Why? What is this all-powerful force? Why does he do this? Because he loves us. And he channels his power on our behalf. Can you imagine that? Okay. We imagined him as the divine warrior king. Second, I want us to imagine him as the creator king. Second, I want us to imagine him as the creator king. Look at the end of verse 1. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Okay, so why can the world not be moved here? What does the psalmist say? It's because Yahweh's throne was established when the world was created. So there's this sense in which human language fails us, right? Because there's this sense in which God has always been king, but his kingship becomes a reality in the creation of the universe. And so this is communicating to the people of God that God's reign is it's not a new thing. He's not just showing up on the scene. He established his rule when he created all things. Nothing can alter his eternal purposes at creation. The world is established. As, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I couldn't help but go to the book of Job. Uh, and I've talked about this before with you, but I couldn't help but go to the book of Job where Job suffers so greatly, right? It, it's absolutely horrifying. And in the midst of all this suffering, he comes before God and he does what? He asks why. Why this suffering, God? And here I think we see ourselves in Job, right? This is not just Job's question. This is a question that you and I constantly 
bring before God. Do you remember how God responds? Let me read it. Job 38.4. This is Yahweh. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God, why all of this suffering? Why all of this evil? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, do you have understanding? How do you feel about that answer? <laughs> right? Not great. Um, Job doesn't get a clear answer, right? Job doesn't get this certainty that he's longing for, right? As to the why. Um, but what happens? He's humbled before God. Why? Because he's asked to imagine a God that creates everything from nothing. Enter on to the imagination train with me. <laughs> I don't like that either. But, I mean, can you really begin to fathom a God that creates everything from nothing? Can you even begin to fathom how he brought everything together? Right? I get nauseous when I start thinking about the complexity of the human body. I mean, can you imagine the, com the complexity? Can you imagine a wisdom? A wisdom that brings everything from nothing and then orders it and then sets it in motion. Right? Uh, Someone tell me if they have understanding. <laughs> because I don't. I simply sit in awe. But do you know who has understanding? Jesus. You know why? He was there when the cosmos was created. Remember Colossians 1? All things were created by him and through him and for him. Whew. That's worth thinking about. You see, so often you and I think we need certainty. Right now, I want it so badly. But, but what if that's not what we need? What if that's not what we need to be okay? What if we really just need to sit in humility before the Creator God? What if we just need to fathom a God who in His wisdom creates everything from nothing. Maybe we just need to sit and fathom that if God can bring creation from nothing and can order all things, then maybe he knows what he's doing with our lives more than we do. I'm joking. Of course God doesn't know better than we do, right? Maybe he knows. Could that be possible? Okay. Third I want us to imagine him as the sea king. I want us to imagine God as, you heard me right, the sea king. At this point, the imagination thing, you were probably a little concerned. Now you've thought I've completely lost it. The sea king. So do you mean like Aquaman? Do you mean like Jason Momoa? Well, kind of. 
you know, kind of. Um, Yes and no. Read verses 3 and 4, and it might make you feel a little better about the mental sanity of your pastor. Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of many, of, uh, excuse me, the waves of the sea. The Lord is hot. The Lord on high is mighty. Man, I butchered that reading. Let's do that one more time. All right. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Okay, so this picture here is water rising up in opposition to God and his people, right? So what's going on in this image? Well, I think there's a couple things going on. First, in the ancient world, they knew just like we do that the sea is a mighty power, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The, the Perfect Storm. Anybody? It's, it's not a pick-me-up. It's, it's a nightmare. It's just watching these fishermen just get beat. It's like a Rocky movie, except the fishermen are Rocky, and the sea is the Russian boxer, and the fishermen are just getting beat and beat and beat until finally what? The sea defeats them. They have no hope at overcoming this force. They just hang on until it just finally overwhelms them. Right? The sea is this mighty force that is to be respected and to be feared. We all know this. right? Secondly, I think that there's something else going on. In, in the Old Testament, waters would often symbolize the nations in opposition to Israel the threat of the nations to Israel. So think about a tsunami. And think about the damage that a tsunami does as it breaks into the shore and just causes utter devastation. Right? Well, just as the waters go over the shore, so all of Israel's enemies seek to come on to them and to completely cover them up. And to completely take them over. So there's a reference here to the enemies of the people of God, but then I think there could even be something else going on here. Uh, Thirdly, Israel's neighbors, they all had their own cosmogenies, right? That's a fun word at a party, right? Cosmogony, great band name. Um, What's that? It's there are traditions about how the world began. And it's, uh, there are traditions about creation. And while each of these accounts differ, you, you can find commonalities between them. So, for example, uh, in the Babylonian tradition, the god Marduk first wins a battle with the goddess Tiamat, and then he creates uh, from her body. 
it's a great children's story. Uh, or you can think about the, the Canaanite tradition. And on the Canaanite tradition, we hear about a god you may have heard of, Baal, or Baal in the south. Um, the storm god, and, and we, re- we read about his conflict with Yom, uh, the god of what? The sea. The sea. So, so often in these stories, the bad guy, the one that must be overcome to creation, for creation to be a reality, is what? It's the sea, this mighty opposing force. So what's the point? Why take you through that fun bit of history? Um, because the psalmist, whatever he's alluding to here, is making his point very clearly that Yahweh is the king of the sea. That Yahweh commands the sea. Think about Genesis 1. Yahweh is not in the combat. What happens? He speaks and creation happens. He speaks and the waters listen to him. Think about his people as they cross into the desert from Egypt. He separates the waters. And think about Jesus when he's on a boat and there's a storm, what does he do? He speaks, and the storm does what? He, it stops. <laughs> it stops, and the disciples are just totally freaking out. Why? Because it's Yahweh that commands the seas. Everybody else is just like the fishermen in the perfect storm, holding on for dear life. So, what in your life right now do you see is more powerful than Yahweh? What in your life right now feels more powerful than God? Is it a situation? Is, is it a boss? Is it a sickness? Is it an, an uncertain future? Is it um, these corporations? Is it politicians? Do you just feel like a pawn in this, this bigger game? Right? I think uh, Bo Burnham's new special on Netflix, which I'm not encouraging you to watch, viewer discretion advice, it just totally communicates this. In this complete, utter sense of helplessness in the face of the horror and the evil of this world, and just feeling like a pawn in the machine. Yahweh looks at the powers of the world and he laughs. And he sits above it. So what in your life feels chaotic right now? What in your life feels totally out of control? Yahweh is more powerful. Jesus is more powerful. It's worth imagining. Okay, finally, the last point for this morning I want us to imagine him, imagine God as the holy king. Look at verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So first, verse 5, uh, the psalmist talks about the word of the Lord 
and how it is trustworthy. How we can trust his word. How we can trust his instruction. His instruction is something that is worthy of you building your life upon. It's good. It's trustworthy. And why is it? Because holiness befits his household. Earlier I said we talked about fashion. Well, now we're going to have to talk about interior decorating. Luckily, I'm an expert in this as well, too. Said The, the text says, holiness befits your household. It's, it's this image that wherever the Lord dwells, holiness is there. It's like the sun. And the holiness is like the heat that just radiates from him because he is holy. What is God's holiness? Right? That's one of those questions that like maybe a kid asks and you're like, uh, you know, you're trying to answer it and you're like, I know this, just give me a second. I'm not dumb. Um, these kids just ask these questions, right, that, that you're not prepared for. What is God's holiness? Well, I think to put it simply, God's holiness is his singular transcendence. It's his unique majesty. It's his absolute purity as God. To say that God is holy is to say that God is God. Right? But that doesn't get us very far, does it? (laughs) So to, to say that God is holy is to talk about him being utterly unique and absolutely pure. He is of supreme worth and value because of this, and all of his actions are in line with that reality. To put it another way, everything that makes God glorious is what makes him holy. Everything that makes God glorious is what makes him holy. So God's glory is his holiness revealed to us. It's worth writing down and thinking about it, you know. God's glory is his holiness made visible, and we just get a glimpse of it. Uh, Holiness befits your house forevermore. 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 For you and I to stop and to think about eternity, it's just absolutely horrifying right? Uh, Back on the imagination train with me. Um, Our finite minds can't begin to comprehend it, right? Uh, I do this with with high school students all the time, right? I have them stop and think about it, and I'm like, how do you feel? And they're like, my mind's melting! And I'm like, yeah, bro! You know, I mean, that's, but I want to do it with you you all too. It's worth thinking about these things. To think about eternity is absolutely horrifying, right? Uh, NBC's The Good Place, it kind of ends with this, right? Where they finally get to eternity and they realize, holy crap, eternity, this is the way that they were envisioning it, is a nightmare. (laughs) Because it's just, it's forever. It never ends, right? That has to be Absolutely horrifying, right? And boring and, and dull, and it's got to be a prison. Right? 
Well, this is where I think that Jonathan Edwards can actually be very helpful. I don't know why I said actually. This is where Edwards can be helpful. Not like he's not helpful most of the time. I, you know, this is where Edwards can be helpful is, is what I'm trying to say. Listen to what he says. And I realize this has been a little dense, so if you need to check out, just feel free. Um, but Edwards writes about the saints in heaven. Right? He, he writes about the saints in heaven, and, and listen to what he says. He says that for the saints in heaven, their knowledge will increase to eternity. And if their knowledge, doubtless their holiness For as they increase in knowledge and of the works of God, the more they will see of his excellency. And the more that they see of his excellency, the more that they will love him. And the more they love God, the more delight and happiness will they have in him. So, we, I'm trying to think how to say this, we will never know God as he is. Only God has that knowledge. We will never fully know God. That's what I'm saying. Only God will fully know God. But for eternity, that means that our knowledge is going to continue to grow and continue to grow and as our knowledge continues to grow and we continue to see how holy he is by his revealed glory to us, you know what that means? That means that our delight continues to grow and continues to grow. And as our delight continues to grow, you know what that means? Our love for him continues to grow. Is that horrifying? No, that is absolutely beautiful. He is an inexhaustible fountain of glory and beauty, and forever we will gaze upon that and continue to experience a joy and a delight and a happiness that we can't even fathom now. That's worth imagining. So really my hope this morning is that as you and I, anxious as we are, anxious as I am in this season, And as I face and we face together uncertainty and chaos, that we might be able to be a people that stop and imagine God as he is. Maybe you turn to Psalm 93, and maybe you put a five-minute timer on your phone, and maybe you just sit in silence in the midst of uncertainty, and you just reflect on these truths. I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like for you, Maybe you sit there and you just focus on your breathing and then you acknowledge that that God who is all-powerful and transcendent is closer to you than your very breath. Maybe you do that. But my hope in all of it is that we can be a people that accept uncertainty and surrender to his providential care.